Welcome to Disciple Dojo. Guys, you're in for a treat today. I got to sit down with a friend of mine, Gregory Richardson. He is an ethical hacker. He is also a Bible nerd. So we had a discussion about the technology surrounding AI, deepfake, chat GPT, uh, computer-generated art, all that kind of stuff, and the ethics involved. It was a great discussion. If you haven't already, check out his channel. He's got great content. He's a good dude. It was a pleasure having him here in the dojo. And also subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. Our goal this year is to reach 20,000 subscribers. Big goal. I'm still not convinced we're going to do it. We're going to try. That's where you come into play. So click the subscribe button and click the notifications icon. Both of those let YouTube know that you enjoy this channel and you want to see more of it. As always, check out our online store. We've got everything from t-shirts to mugs to jujitsu and workout training gear. All sales from there help support Disciple Dojo. Or if you don't really care about any dojo swag and you just want to support this ministry, we'd love for you to become a monthly Disciple Dojo donor. Everything we do is entirely donor funded and having monthly donors of any amount is a tremendous blessing to this ministry. So if you appreciate the channel and the ministry of Disciple Dojo, we would love to have you partner with us financially on a monthly basis. Okay, let's get into some ethics of artificial intelligence. First of all, Dojo viewers don't may not know who you I mean, they, I've mentioned you before and some of us, some of our viewers follow your channel as well. But a number of people, they may want to know who you are and why I picked you to have this discussion. And you were the first person when I was thinking about AI, deepfake, chat GPT, all the stuff we're going to talk about your name. It wasn't it wasn't like you were at the top of the list. You were the list of people that I wanted to talk to. But that's, that's humbling. Thank you for that, Jam. Absolutely. Um, partially because you are a Bible nerd like myself. We hung out together in Denver. We had met on Facebook uh, maybe a year or so before, but we really got to hang out in Denver, which was a blast. We got to travel a little bit together. You kind of uh, accompanied me into the nice suite at the airport waiting and we could just chill. That was great because I never get to experience that. And we both bought an obscene amount of books at SBL, kindred spirits in that regard. But when it comes to AI, when it comes to technology, what's your background for people that just don't know who you are? I mean, like, like you don't have to puff yourself up and I know you won't want to, I may have to actually pull it out of you, but why, why would I come to you for this? Tell me what, tell the people what you do for a living and what your background is. Sure. Um, so first of all, honored to be here. Thanks for the invite, Jam. Um, I've been a long time fan of your channel um, since um, maybe two years ago. Carmen, Dr. Carmen Imes mm -hmm. uh, referred you or mentioned you on social or something. Yeah, we connected like, somehow through Carmen. Yeah, who's yeah. this person that Dr. Imes is referring to? So you had a YouTube channel, so I went and checked it and have been a fan since then the Bible reviews, and I could go on and on. And I remember watching your channel and thinking to myself, we are definitely kindred spirits. Like the Mark, like this is going to be really corny, but this is real. This is live TV, folks. The Marvel <laughs> yeah. stuff. Like that's literally the show I'm wearing. That was unplanned. Like I, I, I didn't think I'm going to be talking to JM, so let me wear Marvel shoes. I'm a Marvel fan. I'm a comic book fan, big time Star yes. Wars fan and big time a Bible nerd. Hmm. That's, I find that to be a little bit of an unusual combination. 
Yeah. So I that drew me into you and your channel right away. So what do I do for a living? I for a living, my nine to five, eight to five, whatever job, I am an ethical hacker, have been an ethical hacker for very long, about 35 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all I've ever done professionally for all intents and purposes. There are little blips of time, especially in the very, very beginning of being an ethical hacker. And I'll explain what that is in a second, um, where hacking and ethical hacking couldn't pay the bills. So I did other things. You know, I, I also was an IT guy. I did network security. I did networking stuff. I built Novell Networks, et cetera. So at my very core, I've pretty much always been a technologist. Um, so that's, 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 you know, that's me. And I've mm-hmm. told people, been a Christian for very long also. I remember at five years old praying that my mom would come to church with me and get saved. And on my sixth, so in other words, I was going to church before my parents were. Mm-hmm. Um, on my sixth birthday, my mom was like, it's Sunday, I'm gonna come to church with you. And she got saved that day. So it, <laughs> it, it was very normal for me that if you pray and you know, it's in God's will, God will do it. And so I've, I've been a very strong Bible believing Christian for a very, very long time. Doesn't mean that I haven't struggled. Doesn't mean that I haven't massively missed the ball many, many times. I struggle, as I tell a lot of the men I hang out with, I struggle on a daily basis. I probably struggled with something today. Um, But I've always believed that technology and understanding technology and being a technologist is stitched by God into my DNA. Hmm. Like, I I mean, that's a Lecrae phrase for those of you that like hip hop, but I very genuinely feel that God gifted me in the technology space. So I've always been stubborn about it. It's what I've always done. Um, so that's that's me at a very high level. If you right. want, we can d- dive deeper into what actually ethical yeah. hacking is. Well, I want to ask a couple of questions. Now, the first is I know some viewers are going to be listening and they're going to say, I'm picking up a little bit of a, uh, as my friend Richard Middleton says, Caribbean accent going on there. So where where did you grow up originally? Good question. Um, that, like many things in my life, is a convoluted answer. <clears throat> I'm Dutch, born in the Netherlands, like Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, my first language was Dutch. So I learned English in primary school. It is very much so my second language. Um, my parents are of Caribbean descent, one of the little islands that the, that the Dutch colonized candidly during slavery times, but mm. it is what it is. Um, so that's the island that I grew up on. There's a bunch of islands called the Nether, used to be called the Netherlands Antilles. The one that I grew up on is called St. Martin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a Caribbean thing there. But I've been living in the U.S. for about 20, 20 plus years. Yeah. Uh, actually lived in Charlotte ex- up until the last three years ago. Um, yeah. We never met. We, never met. we, we just yeah. missed each other. Uh, we connected right. after you left. Uh, so... Once you get back, we're going to get to hang out in person again. I'm looking forward back. to that. Yeah. So now ethical hacking. This this is my introduction to ethical hacking. One of my favorite movies of all time. One of, I think the most enjoyable movies ever made is Sneakers. Now, that was before in. Well, maybe they had something remotely close to the Internet at that point. But the bulk of that movie has nothing to do with anything online because this was back in the late 80s or maybe early 90s, can't remember. But they said at the beginning of Sneakers, the woman says when Robert Redford is getting his check after completing the job, the heist, 
She said, so you break into other people's companies to make sure no one can break into other people's companies? And he says, it's a living. And she hands him the check and says, not a very good one, uh, which is a funny moment. And then the whole rest of the movie is about them doing that. But then it goes, go see sneakers, folks. If you haven't watched it, it's a classic. classic. Anyway, classic. I, I love it. I mean, I genuinely love that movie. So how close to that is what you did? Because that was around the time. That's, you know, 30 years ago. We're getting into that age when that was a thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about the type of ethical hacking that you do. And maybe you not obviously because it's a secure <laughs> profession, you can't shell, share specifics, but a little bit of like examples of the type of work or the things you've done as an ethical hacker. So I'm, I'm going to try my best not to reference sneakers too much for those fans. References as much as you want. And if they don't get it, that's their it fault for not seeing it. It's like not seeing Shawshank. It's just ridiculous. Like you need to have seen it. Inexcusable. You're mm -hmm. right. Um, or Star Wars, but that's a different conversation. Anyway, um, sneakers was very physical security oriented. Right. So they were breaking into safes and breaking into banks and that kind of stuff. The digital version of that, and they sometimes used computers, but they weren't really trying to protect computers. They were more leveraging the computers to get to something else. Right. The digital version of that where we break into computers or we always with permission. And that's what makes it an ethical hack. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, some people say, oh, I'll just go break into all kinds of computers and then go and tell the person, hey, I just broke into your computer. Give me a hundred bucks or, or else that's a crime. Don't yes. do that at all. <laughs> um, so what we do is we help large, typically large companies, governments, large organizations, because that's, they're the ones that can afford to pay for cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. um, we help them secure their networks from and computers and cash registers and websites from bad people that want to break in. And the way you oftentimes do that, sometimes you get to do it by building a, a good architecture, you know, and again, you'll see I do a lot of biblical stuff. Um, the, the term for apostolic is tied to, as far as I understand it, JM could probably correct me on this if I'm mistaken, and I've been saying this wrong my whole life. But the term for <laughs> apostolic is tied to the, the, the English word for architect, an architect being someone that has the ability to see the big picture. Um, that's what I, sometimes you need to leverage the architectural to be able to see the big picture to tell the customer, listen, you're trying to protect this, but the big picture is all of this. So um, that's how you defend sometimes by architecting something bigger than what the problem is. Other times you break in and then you tell them, listen, you need to tactically fix these three things right now. Because the same way I just broke in, a bad guy can do the same thing. So that's mm -hmm. two aspects of a very, very broad um, part of what cybersecurity is. Interesting side note, if I may share. Yes. Um, I was thinking um, today, like, you know, where this came up and, you know, my the, the, the techno side of me, where did I, you know, where did it flourish? I remember in the fifth grade, I was 10 years old and my friends and I and keep in mind, I'm over 50. So do the math on how many years ago before the Internet, before YouTube, that was my friends and I in the fifth grade had a YouTube channel. Literally, we borrowed a, a, one of their dad's beta camcorder, and we were recording technology tips and tricks, as God is my witness, <laughs> for the adults on beta cassettes. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't remember how we were distributing it. I think the public network in the Caribbean got a hold of it and that it, w- it was being played there. But I-, I just say that to say that's how passionate I've always, it's literally the only thing that I've ever been always consistently drawn to other than God. Now, that's a great segue because I want to put the other half of this puzzle piece together, which is biblical studies. How did that come about? Because usually people who are so well enmeshed in their career and doing well and and having success and doing what they love, as you've been doing, uh, typically don't say, I'm going to go study and get a master's in, you know, biblical studies, MDiv or PhD work or whatever. So where did that piece of the puzzle come along? Thousand percent God. Um, you know, name drop someone who kind of kicked me into that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Christian, I was getting probably 10 years ago or so, I was getting kind of frustrated with seeing what I thought was the misappropriation and misuse of my text, meaning the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that drove me and I didn't have the tools to do it. But that drove me to, dude, you got to understand this Bible a little bit better so that you can recognize when someone is using it out. uh, And the someone was oftentimes a pastor, Mm -hmm. sometimes a pastor of a church I was going to. So in me trying to discern what was right, what was wrong, that drove me to, hey, dude, you got to do more than just memorize a couple of verses and be able to grab ye random scripture and you know, vomit cannon it out on someone. There's got to be more to it. And the name drop that I was going to do, um, I don't remember how, but this is the person that introduced me to Dr. Carmen Imes, um, Dr. Michael Heiser, who is mm-hmm. very, very ill right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he actually, I met him somewhere, we spoke, and he very strongly encouraged me, dude, the tools are there. A lot of them are technological. Mm-hmm. Go and do the study. And that one thing led to another. And I would very strongly say God spoke to me through him telling me, go and, you know, do further studies. Because the first thing I told myself is, God, I got a day job. I ain't trying to be no pastor. I don't need an MDiv to go and start a church or whatever. I'm good. Like, you told me to do this. You built this into me. So I'm pretty sure this is what you want me to do, meaning the tech stuff. And God was like, nope, go and go and go and do this. So that's how I ended up. Um, and I'm wrapping up my first master's now. I'm literally in the process of beginning the second master's kind of simultaneously because I'm just wrapping up the last two weeks of my master's project. Um, and the aim is probably I'm going to end up getting a Ph.D. at some point in research because I like research. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things and this segues into the AI stuff. One of the things I'm seeing is there is significant value to leveraging technology for helping us better study, better understand the Bible. Mm. One of those technologies could be maybe some AI related stuff, but there's nuance there. So we'll we'll get into that as we discuss. Yeah, we'll definitely unpack that for sure. I uh, One point I want to make. You mentioned Mike Heiser um, kind of drop kicking you into this, and, and that's a good person to get kicked by in terms of get, getting you you know pushed into biblical studies. I've never, and given his uh, condition now, um, I won't meet Dr. Heiser this side of eternity. And but I'm I'm constantly seeing people who have been uh, not even 
inspired is almost too weak a word. People who have been like given a passion to study scripture through the work that he has done. And this is one of the things I, I, I read all uh, his, his trilogy. I have it behind me, the unseen realm angels and demons, because I, people were asking me, what do you think about Heiser? What do you think about Heiser? So I wanted to read his stuff because some people think he's the greatest thing in the world and everything he says is like coming down from heaven. And other people think he is completely off his rocker and shouldn't be ignored by everyone. And Carmen and I had a good discussion when she was on the first time about, you know, where we both stand. And she actually is a friend of his. I'm not. But we we had kind of the same view. She says, I, I have so much respect for him because of not just what he does, but how he does it. And I, I feel the same way, even when I'm reading Mike Heiser's work. And there are a number of things that I read as an old Testament guy. And I'm like, I I disagree with you. And I think you haven't done justice to this argument. Those are like, if we were at an SBL something and he was presenting and I got to raise a hand, ask a question, it would be along those lines. Hey, I, I think you're missing, not missing, but I think you're intentionally like maybe not given the best presentation of this view. But that is in every theologian, in every biblical scholar, you're going to find that. One of the things I like with Heiser, he's one of, well, as a scholar that introduced me to the notion of biblical scholarship, he also simultaneously introduced me to the notion of a lot of these things none of us know for sure, dude. Like even what, like he said numerous times, even what I'm saying, I might be wrong. Like the <laughs> yes. Bible doesn't concretely tell us every single nuance of every aspect of theology. There's some yeah. things that we're going to have to agree to disagree on. I yeah. In the churches I grew up in, that was foreign to me. Like I mm-hmm. was taught, if you don't agree with X, Y, Z, good one, eschatological system, you're not saved. Like right. I was literally taught that. <laughs> to now run into people that think differently. So now I'm parsing, are they saved? Am I wrong? Like, have I not, have I not been saved this whole time? To finally run into a scholar that says, we don't know. Like, I have an opinion on it, Mr. Scholar yeah. guy says, but I, I, I could be wrong. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And just that alone, like, it really cracked open the envelope of God being able to speak to me through his word. And it taught me, candidly, a, a, a strong bit of meekness. You know, in the mm-hmm. tech space, it's a lot of A per a, type A personalities that all are always right in every circumstance. So I, I'm surrounded by that. And to be to have the the corollary of you might you might be wrong on this, Greg, is very, very healthy and it's very grounding yeah. to me. So I I try to daily remind myself on biblical things, even the things that I'm studying and that I'm passionate about, I could be wrong mm-hmm. on tech things could be wrong. Yeah. Probably yeah. That's a thing to say on an interview, but on the yeah. AI stuff, I could be wrong. I don't think I am because I use a lot of AI and I've been using it for a long time, but I could be wrong. Well, that's a healthy, that's a healthy form of, of confident humility. So you want to be confident in your opinion because you don't just grab something for no reason. You believe something for a reason. You know, like Mike Heiser has arguments for why he believes what he believes and he lays them out well. And and, it, and it's actually really cool to read. Even if you end up not agreeing, you're like, oh, but I picked something up in that process. And you pointed out something that I had missed. And I appreciate that, which is where I land on him. 
and on all biblical scholarship that's good and worth really digging into, you'll find that attitude is, hey, I'm not going to say, well, I don't know. You know, it's like, no, this is why I think what I think. Convince me if I'm wrong. Show me why I'm wrong. But at the same time, you recognize, but I could easily be wrong. And I'm open to the evidence. N.T. Wright, he wrote it in Justification. He said, Every semester, I tell my students 30% of what I'm going to teach you is wrong. The problem is I don't know which 30%. <laughs> That's a marvelous attitude to have. And it's one that, that I strive at Disciple Dojo, and, and I know that you do as well. And I think every theologian, every biblical scholar should. Before we started recording, we were talking about some of the tendencies among Christian YouTubers to always be dogmatic and upset about something. And You'll notice this, especially among the more popular preachers and teachers, yep. whether it's old school traditionals or the new YouTube generation of vloggers, there's a tendency among Christians to mistake certainty or, or, or bombast for accuracy. And one of the reasons we're having discussions like this is because on so many topics, there are unknowns. And there are, it's ambiguous and it's fluid and there are contrary opinions. And so we, I want Dojo viewers, when we start thinking about things like AI and chat GPT and deep fake technology, I don't want Dojo viewers to react. I want Dojo viewers to have a proactive understanding of what this technology entails at a basic level, because we're not getting into like too techie stuff. But just to be able to assess the situation with calm, wise discernment instead of reactionary, emotional suspicion, because there's too much of that online already. And if you need examples, just look on the right hand side of your screen while you're watching this YouTube video. And I'm sure there are video recommendations right there of all kinds of people who will get you riled up about something. We don't want to do that today. Uh, so it we're going to so like it I, does I get clicks. Why people are drawn to that is the same reason why the the mainstream media on all sides, right leaning, left leaning, conservative, progressive, whatever, they focus on what they focus on. Like it's not that there's only bad news; it's that the bad news, the 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 you know the trendy stuff is typically, I don't want to say harmful, but it's like fast food. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, fast food has some nutrition. I'd say it's like Halloween candy. Um, <laughs> no, let's this, all of that to say, we're going to talk about what is AI. That term gets thrown around so much. So I don't know anything about this. You're here to set straight in my mind, at least, and hopefully in the mind of the viewers, Lay the landscape out so we can even begin to approach these type of questions. And then we'll move into, you know, I'm going to ask you a few about some specifics, but just in general, what is AI and what are some of the biggest and most widespread misconceptions that people have about AI, particularly Christians? Got it. Um, super important. And I'll ask you, your, your viewers, to stick a pin in this mentally. What is AI? AI is a series, uh, is a system, a computer, digital system that allows you to do calculations that can 
allow the computer to simulate human intelligence. So that's the goal of AI. Now there are subsections to AI, um, machine learning, which allows you to, to, to take large tons of data and analyze the data for, for, for whatever stuff, et cetera. And I'll give you examples of that in a minute. There's neural networks where you take multiple comp comp computational things and run them on one piece of data. So first you run this, then the other, then the other to get to an output. Um, and that makes what you call deep learning. So now we have AI, think of AI as a big circle. Inside of that circle, you have machine learning, you have deep learning, you have neural networks. That's what AI is. It is a computer trying to pretend it has human attributes. Any legitimate AI person will tell you it is a computer pretending, simulating intelligence. It is not intelligent. And you can demonstrate that very easily with ChatGPT and a lot of the, the cutting edge AI stuff, certain things you, I'll give you a, a phenomenal, well, before I give you the phenomenal example, where I think Christians and some mainstream non-Christian people as well, let's say where lay people in general struggle is the overlap between intelligence and sentience. Intelligence is the ability to think through something and, you know, say one plus one equals two. You, you come up with an output based on an input. I give you one. I give you another one. What does that mean? Oh, you had one apple plus another apple. Or now I have two apples. That's intelligence. Sentience is the ability to take intelligence, combine it with feeling, combine it with thinking, combine it with learning on its own. That's sentience. Humans, for the most part, are sentient. You start off as an infant, very little intelligence. You grow and you, you learn, you pick up stuff, you feel stuff, you touch fire. You're like, oh my God, fire burns, et cetera. That's sentience. Computers are not sentient, at least not yet. My expectation will be probably never will get sentient in definitely not in our lifetimes, Potentially never. I suspect there's probably spiritual things there going on, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why is well, it important? Real quick, let me ask you before yeah, we move yeah. on. Go, fire. What do you, do you put any stock in the Turing test of how you can, you know, the, the famous Turing test is if a machine can convince and uh, what, did, I don't even know how to word it. It's just if a machine can make you think it's sentient, then it passes the tour. It, tell, because that concept gets thrown around sometimes, especially in movies. Um what, where, where does that fit into this? Again, artificial intelligence is a machine pretending to be sentient. Pretending to be intelligent is what it's really pretending. Mm -hmm. So I can take an input. And remember I said I'd give you an example. Here's a super example. One of the inputs I can give my artificial intelligence engine, it's actually a deep, deep, deep learning engine because there's multiple transactions that happens. One of the inputs I can give an artificial intelligent engine is what's the weather today? And as a, hopefully my phone won't go crazy. As an example, hey, Alexa, what's the weather today? Alexa, the artificial intelligence, takes that and runs multiple algorithms on it that first says, this person has asked me for, it said, hey, Alexa, which is what it needs to get kick, kick off started. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I heard a word in there, weather. 
I heard another word in there today because I can say, hey, Alexa, what's the weather today? Or I can say, hey, Alexa, how's the weather looking today? Or I can say, hey, Alexa, is the weather good today? Different sentences, different words. They all mean the same thing. How does Alexa get from, hey, Alexa, how's the weather today? To the weather today is 70 degrees and it's you know cloudy, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It does multiple transactions. So it takes what you said, converts it into numbers, takes those numbers, converts it into topics, takes those topics and says, this person try- is trying to find out weather today, Charlotte, North Carolina. And then it spits that out. Multiple processes, multiple things, pretending to be human. You can easily, there are many questions, you can Google them, that you can ask those um, you know, little helpers, assistants, that completely trip them up. Why? Because they are only pretending to be sentient. Now, if you spend enough time with one of those assistants, you pretty quickly realize this thing is not intelligent at all. Mm. Like we use one in our house. We'll say stuff like, OK, Alexa, add oat milk to the shopping list. Nine times out of 10, it'll add oat milk. The other times it'll add oats and milk because mm. it couldn't detect that as a like every human in the room heard oat milk. Mm. It heard oat milk. But the pause was a little bit off. So it's think, oh, that's two things. It must be oats and milk. Mm-hmm. Stupid. It's not intelligent at all. But what is allowing this to act a little bit more intelligent is because compute power has gotten bigger and cheaper. So you can do more calculations and processing. So you can give it significantly more rules than we could have five years ago. Mm-hmm. So. Remember I said, you throw the input at it, it converts the input into numbers, converts the numbers into topics. Remember that, that's going to come back up into play. And then it determines from those topics, so this is what this person is trying to figure out. To do that would have taken two or three or four or five hours as little as 10 years ago. Because compute power has gotten more, like faster, and you can get it for cheaper, is why we can do that now. So at one point, we'll be able to put enough compute power behind there to where, like with ChatGPT, it can fake pretend to be pretty intelligent. But they've already made detectors that can detect, and like linguists have done this. They've asked ChatGPT, you know, write a paragraph about, you know, Matthew 1. And they've done that for like seven different things. And you can tell at a certain point this paragraph came, the, the output came from a G, from an AI generator mm-hmm. because of the way the sentence structure is. There's certain commonalities in it. It's very, very, very consistent. So while it's doing a pretty convincing job of fooling you and acting sentient, if you understand what's going on in the background, it's still miles away from sentient. Mm. I think what you the- require for sentience is more sensors, the ability to touch and feel. We like how many sen- what kind of sensor can you put on a computer to allow an AI to feel that, you know, fire is hot without it catching fire? Think, you know, when you start thinking about the sensory perception that humans take in, humans take in smell, you know, the five senses, smell, touch, air, et cetera. To duplicate that on a computer level, extraordinarily difficult. Mm-hmm. And those are the the hurdles to a computer becoming legitimately sentient. The the f- fear or excitement, depending on which side of the tech spectrum you're, you are, that people have, I think it comes, that I hear at least, I think it comes from a, a 
is the world naturalistic or is the world metaphysical? And so metaphysical people tend to be a little more pessimistic about the ability of AI to actually become genuinely sentient because metaphysical worldview, the input of signals is not all that there is. Naturalistic worldview, if you take a naturalistic worldview that we are literally just firing neurons and biological stacks and blobs of chemicals, then I think of course AI will become sentient because it's just a matter of getting a computer to fire as fast as our yeah. brain neurons do and, and to create sensors as good as our nerve endings. And that's just a technological issue. So I, to me, when I hear these discussions, how people respond to AI overall at a macro level yeah. gives you a window into their worldview, how they see the world fundamentally what it is. And I think that that's worth at least pointing out for people who are trying to navigate the ethics of AI is, is matter all there is? If matter is all there is, AI will be every bit, if not more than what humans are, because we're just meat machines to quote Bender. But, but even on using, and I obviously don't adhere to that you know, no Christian, I would suggest uh, you can't. Yeah. The Christian worldview immediately. Yeah. I, as a Christian, don't adhere to that. There's probably some person out there that thinks calls themselves a Christian and might legitimately be a Christian that, you know, thinks it's all natural. That's a different story. Um, but even from the purely naturalistic perspective, um, knowing what I know about technology, I think we are still decades, if not centuries away from computers becoming intelligent enough to where we can say, yeah, this thing is actually doing some legitimate processing. Like mm-hmm. anyone that uses these technologies sufficiently. And, and the problem is we get opinion people, you know, influencers standing on the outskirts of technology, making assessments of it. Mm-hmm. And in, in our day and age, especially in this very Western consumeristic type environment, we are inundated with the best of data, social media, everything. You know, you see snippets of people's lives at the best of. You don't see the true picture, you see the best of. So even for things like chat GPT or, you know, the the, the art generating AIs, et cetera, we see the best of. Now, I'm a technologist, so I don't know if you saw the, there's a picture of Jesus, and the disciples around the Last Supper taking a selfie. <laughs> yes. Just yeah. popped up recently. Like I, I probably saw it right around the Super Bowl. So, you know, last two or three or four or five days, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it looks pretty impressive. You know, it's a selfie. You can see them holding the camera. You don't see the camera, but you. Yeah. What I we'll, drop, we'll drop it on the screen so people can see what we're talking about. Yeah. I'll drop what an I image. immediately did is zoomed in. Because I understand technology enough to know there's going to be a flaw there. And when you zoom in close enough, most of the disciples, so you're seeing a table with Jesus in the front. So imagine Jesus holding up an iPhone or something and, you know, seeing a picture of all his disciples sitting behind him facing the camera. Um, when you look closely, they're holding cups like this, like around the, the final, the, the last supper. Many of them have like 20 fingers. So like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight fingers. Right, right, right. Several of them 
have like three hands. Right. Because I, AI is not smart enough to know all of these humans will probably have 10 fingers, two hands, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, if it's focused on, I want to make a nice picture that gives a perspective of, you know, this way, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have enough compute power to also be focused on the details, like how many fingers on a hand, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. things like that are very typical mm -hmm. in these compute spaces. You're, you're going to give up on one thing to make the other thing look good. You see this in deep fakes as well. We spoke about deep fakes earlier, mm -hmm. where if you focus on maybe getting the mouth good so that the mouth is synced up with what the person is saying because you're trying to do a de-aging routine like in you know The Mandalorian, I want to say season three or whenever it was, season two, I think it was at the end of it with Luke. Yeah, with Luke, um, yep. You, you're focused so much on getting the mouth right that the eyes look completely fake. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take your time and say, look, I got infinite amount of time that, you know, I'm not constrained by the production of Hollywood. I can make the eyes look good and the mouth look good, but more than likely something else behind me is not looking good. And that's how computers are. Like as impressive as they are, if you analyze carefully and look at the true view of what they're doing, there's lots of flaws. Like if this is artificial intelligence, these are some dumb intelligences. Mm -hmm. Like if our kids reacted like this in school, we'd be praying like, Lord, what's wrong with my kid? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, but we have this image that artificial intelligence is, oh my God, it's amazing. Cause you can go to chat GPT and say, you know, write me 500 words essay on Matthew five, you know, one through five. And it'll do that. And it'll be pretty legit. Professors are already like, biblical scholars and probably secular scholarship professors as well are already struggling with how do I now detect that my students have used tools like chat GPT and the same way they make those tools to allow you to do that. There's tools that allow you to detect very quickly that this was probably generated by an AI. Well, let's talk about that then, because those are a couple of examples and I do want to focus on those three examples. Um, so let's start with uh, let's, let's switch it up. Um, go from the most trivial to what I think are the most important. So I sent you an order of these topics. I'm going to actually switch the first two. I think the most trivial level. Now, this is not trivial for people who make their living as, say, artists or musicians or creators. But in the grand scheme of things, that is less of a concern. So we'll start there. Something like um, mid-journey art generating, AI art generators, there you 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 how does it work how, what do you do to create ai art for somebody who's watching this who doesn't know jack squat about any of this what is an ai art generator and why would anybody have any objection to it I'll speak the objection part i'll leave for the for afterwards but what is midjourney Probably still a free tool. Maybe not. I'm not sure. But Midjourney website you can go to. Um, you can. There's an app version of it as well where you can install it. You go and you say, listen, draw me. And remember, I promised stick a pin in our definition of AI, you know, with mm -hmm. the, the, the big circle with inside of the circle as machine learning, deep learning, neural networks. And that's AI. But sentience is outside the circle. Great. Remember that. And remember that ties into you put inputs in it, it runs processes on the inputs, and then it generates an output. That's all mid-journey is. Remember, I, I, we will keep pointing back to that. Mm -hmm. So the input mid-journey asks for is, um, hey, 
draw me a picture of Jesus walking on the water, walking on the Sea of Galilee. And then Midjourney gets out, it does this little processing. First thing it does is it breaks up your input, Jesus, Sea, Galilee, walking, water. It, it, it needs to get that so it knows what you're asking it to draw. Mm-hmm. Where, what's the rest of the input that it's getting that you're not aware of? Where's the Sea of Galilee? Someone is feeding this thing. It's probably connected to the internet and it's, it's being fed geographical details. It's being fed books like the Bible, mm-hmm. historical details, non-historical details, fiction tales, et cetera, et cetera. So when you say paint Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, it knows that comes from this topic over here. So now it can start filling in the context. So if you've ever, like I did that, and if you've seen that, you see Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. You also see the 12 disciples in a boat next to him. And you see Peter in some of the, the renditions of it trying to get out of the boat and walk. Why? Because it, it collected all the text. So all it is, again, taking the input that you gave it, taking some other input, running some calculations on it, and then generating an output that you've just asked. So if you had said, I want to see Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee in the 20th century, all it will do is the same thing, change the boat to probably a cruise ship or a speedboat or whatever, mm-hmm. because it knows in the 20th century, the boats will look different. It knows the clothing will look different. And it then generates art based on that. Does That's it, what mid-journey is. Does it pop? I've never used it. Um, I just haven't had time to look at it. Does it pop out an bunch of images and you, you know, this, or does it just boom, here it is. And then you have to yep. go, yeah, I like it or no, I don't like it. Is there like swiping involved, like a dating app where you're there like, is, this is closer, this is less. There are, are, are levers, I'll call them that. And they're not actual levers, but there's levers you can pull to say, listen, I want the water to be a little more watery looking. I want, you know, the boat, like I just said, I want the boat to be a newer boat. You know, you're using a sailboat, maybe it was a rowboat. Uh, and you have levers to adjust that type of nuance. So you are now engaging with this AI to to generate the, 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 the final output that you want. That's what mid-journey is. It's not unlike what an artist does. Mm -hmm. If I walk up to a street artist and say, hey, paint me on the Sea of Galilee, you know, with Jesus. He probably has heard of the Sea of Galilee. He's probably heard of Jesus. He probably picks up, you're talking about that walking on the water thing. So I want your face on the guy that's coming out of the water. It's it's Mm -hmm. that. Right, right. But not as smart as an artist would be. Right. So the... And, sorry, this is super, super important. Mm -hmm. And constrained the ai is constrained by the data that's fed into it so a lot of these artificial intelligences and the the air quotes are for the intelligence part have a bias if the data you're feeding into it is the data that like if if some people have said the internet in general is very right-leaning very progressive you know, in terms of viewpoints, in terms of politics, in terms of that. So if the data that uh, AI generates left leaning or right leaning, right leaning, like conservative, no, left, left, left leaning. OK, gotcha. left leaning. My bad. Progressive. Right. So gotcha. if the data that it has access to is largely left leaning, its outputs are going to have that left leaning nuance to them as well. Mm-hmm. Humans do that, too. I would suggest humans are probably better at filtering that out. Computers are not because he doesn't have the computer and I shouldn't call him he. The computer doesn't have the context of both sides of the story. As far as right. the computer is concerned, it's getting that side of the story. That's the data that's out there. Well, but there's the, tons of bias there. 
Yeah, and and I'm about to pick your brain on that in just a second because that's going to definitely come into the next point. But before we leave Mid Journey and AI art, the objections that I've heard as an artist, um, those of you that don't know, my third job, jiu-jitsu teacher, Bible teacher, uh, artist. And so everything you were saying about what you're telling the computer, any person that's done art for hire, they've had those conversations. Any designer has had endless back and forth emails with a client. Hey, can you make the logo bigger? Okay. Now, can you do it with more of an old timey feel? Okay. What about would you do this font? So None of that's controversial. That is just what it, it's doing yeah, similar to what Photoshop has allowed people to do to create their own stuff that you used to have to go to a photography specialist to do. That's not super controversial. I mean, it, it's kind of eating into territory where people are making a living. So I could see where it gets controversial is the data input. And the example that I, that can, as an artist, I think a legitimate concern that I've had, very famous illustrator Kim Jong-gi uh, passed away recently, a prolific illustrator. In, I mean, almost a savant level in terms of his gifting. Dude could just go up to a blank wall with a pen and just create this whole landscape of people. And I mean, I'll put some Kim Jong-gi art on the screen so people can see what I'm talking about, but just phenomenally gifted and very famous. One of the few like actually famous while he's alive illustrators passed away prematurely. His art was being already fed into one of the gender. I don't know which one or, and his family said, well, well, wait a minute, like his estate, like you, Anybody now can just say, draw me this in the style of Kim Jong-gi. Boom, it's right there. Comedians also have talked about this, that you can say, uh, I was listening to, to Nate Land podcast, Nate Bargatze, and he was saying that they try, they they did a, hey, write me a joke about, I don't know, chickens or something in the style of Nate Bargatze. And it wrote a set. And he read it. They read it on the podcast. It was pretty spot on in terms of mimicking everything from his cadence to his vocabulary choice. And other comedians have talked, have looked at that as well. So the concern, the ethical gray area comes in the concept of intellectual property. If, if I put work out there as an artist and somebody scans my art into an AI generator without my permission or knowledge, how is that different than you know, photocopying a famous photographer a book. work and well, yeah, right. plagiarism and yeah, let's, just using let's, let's it. Go, let's go pre the digital era. How is that different than forgers um, stealing biblical or forging biblical documents, thinking the book of Jasher and purporting that, hey, we just found the book of Jasher. Like that happened. It's real history. Mm. That happened, I want to say, in the 13th century. I'm going off the top of my head, so don't, don't correct me if I'm wrong on that. But that happened long before computers. As long as humans are in the mix mm -hmm. um, in a fallen world, um, someone is going to try to do something wrong with you know, whatever technology exists. Whether the technology is pen and paper or the technology is a computer that can speed up the time it takes to spit out a work of art, uh, you know, a digital image. Um, yeah. So the I do you see a way of stopping it? Do you no, see a way of protecting that? No. So then, Just what like do we with music? Remember when music started going from from physical records, CDs to digital? 
Hmm. Everyone is the, the entire music industry was like, oh, my God, you know, they're going to steal our music. And they were spot on. Right. Tools like Napster and the Pirate Bay came out and people were stealing music like crazy. The entire music industry adapted. And now songs are, are, are distributed through stores like Apple Music and YouTube Music. So you're not buying albums. You're streaming one or two or three or four of your favorite songs. And it's actually for the consumer. I could make a strong case and say it's better for the consumer because I remember buying CDs, even Christian CDs, Amy Grant or whatever, that had two good songs on it. And the other 13 songs were eh. But I bought the whole CD. Now I have the option of saying I've streamed it. Now, only two I want to listen to is these two. So you now know, that's good for the consumer. Adapted, that's where the humans it's it's still a money making business because don't let anyone fool you and tell you the music industry now is no longer profitable. It's still super profitable. The, the profit model and the profit distribution model has changed. And that's the key of what a human does. A human has the ability to adapt in ways that technology has not figured out yet. So looking at the situation, take a step back and say, you know what, my and I'll I'll. I'll flip this back into an AI related thing. My um, um, strength is that I can adapt. So me, for work, I need to write blog posts, you know, thought leadership on cybersecurity, blah, 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 whatever. And I got to sit and generate 500 words. So what I sat back is said, listen, it might be useful for me to tell chat GPT. I'm not going to, if you don't be fraudulent, because you'll get caught fairly easily, but I'm going to tell chat GPT, I need to write a blog on, um, you know, why zero trust security is important for manufacturing sector. Give me five titles for that blog. And J chat GPT actually came up with five or 10 or 15 pretty good titles. Mm -hmm. Those titles allowed me to start building my blog off of that. Mm -hmm. So now I'm leveraging the semi-intelligent computer to make my work a little bit more streamlined. Now I could have sat there and said, no, I'm gonna just you know, write and I'm gonna deal with writer's block and all that kind of stuff. The ability to, to, to shift and kind of tweak your approach is where humans shine. So that requires being ethical. Yes. That that's, that's where we're, the rub is coming in is there is an ethical way Let's, let's go back to visual art for a minute and then we'll jump ahead to ChatGPT. There's an ethical way to use AI generation for art, I think. Yes. Example for me, I do like, sometimes people say, hey, I, want, I do portrait art, that's my focus. Oh, I want a portrait of us as a family. Here's a picture and they gave me a picture and I look at it and I'm like, this, this is gonna make a terrible reference photo. Like, I, you know, the lighting's bad and this and that. I could see a, a huge use in, in AI art for generating artificial lighting, for artificial posing, the way mannequins are used in ancient painters, where it becomes, I think, unethical is if you, the, if you present the art as something you created, the AI art, where I think an ethical use could be is if you use the AI art to generate a reference image, and then you make your art from that reference image, to me, I see a lot of potential for that with the, the situation with Kim Jong-gi, for example, that's a gray area because anybody can look at his books of illustrations or his works. I mean, I can pull a comic book off my shelf and look at Jack Kirby and I can even in, in comic art, there's swiping, stealing art 
where, you know, artists will literally just draw the same superhero pose, but a different character for a different book. And fans will put them side by side and say, you stole that art. And it's very frowned upon. It's not illegal because yeah. the person is drawing the work, but it's very much, I don't want to say self-policed, but it's, it's frowned upon because everybody seeing it knows you just, they did the work you copied and presented it as yours. And I think the ethics lie in for AI art, how it's presented. And if someone that's, that's not a technology problem though. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So that that's why my inclination as far as our conversation has gone so far is to know that's a tool. I'm going to leverage that tool to do something good and ethical with it. That's all it is. It's not mm-hmm. taken over from me. It's not possessed with a demon. It doesn't have the ability to do that. It's just running a lot of calculations quicker than I could run them. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to leverage its ability to do calculations quick quicker than I can to do something that in in a more efficient manner than I could. Like that's right. that's it's it's and the whole ethics part of the conversation and I'm probably going to get I might cost your channel a couple of views on this one. Um, <laughs> one of the places that this pops up in my radar a lot is in Christian Facebook groups and Christian Bible study discussion groups, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. where many Christians think it's okay to take books and distribute the PDFs of them for free because, oh, we're just learning about the Bible. And this is, you know, this author's PDF and he did a great job, but, you know, the Bible is free and the Bible should be, you know, free and we should all be able to, we should all have access to it. I I fight about that, well, argue about that in Christian groups very often because mm-hmm. I think that is unethical copying. But it goes to show the problem isn't the technology. Problem is some humans have bad ethics which I think is symptomatic of us being in a fallen world. Yeah. And, and that, because it's a, that is a bigger ethical issue in, in libertarian circles, uh, which is probably the political party I most closely would relate to. I'm not affiliated with any politics, but uh, nine times out of 10, I'm probably going to veer with an L rather than an R or a D, but in libertarian circles, there are, there's a whole anti IP movement. Like they believe the concept of IP fundamentally is immoral because an idea is not something that you can take from another person uh, physically. In other words, the the argument, I'm not I'm not weighing in on this argument at this point, but the argument is if you have, um, let's say it's the medieval ages and you have a chest of gold coins and I take your gold coins, I've robbed you. I've stolen from you. But if you if if you have a something that's fungible, something that can be duplicated, an idea, and I duplicate it, so you wrote a book, you still got it. I copied your book. You still got the book. I haven't stolen from you legally. That's the argument. The counter argument is, but if somebody's livelihood is based on or their reputation or their whole you know brand, you're taking their intellectual property. And that so I what the only reason I bring this up for viewers is because that is a more foundational ethic that would need to be worked through. So if you're upset about or concerned about somebody using AI generation to create art or music or writing that they didn't technically create and 
that is drawing from somebody else's work that they did work hard to create, the ethics of that hinge on your view of the legitimacy of IP to begin with. If you don't believe IP is valid, you're going to say, well, I didn't take anything from you. If you do believe IP is an actual thing, you're going to say, yes, you did. And so that's an area where it's kind of like you have to pull, like untangle the knot in order to get it. Before you can get to what the problem, before you can even answer the question, 100% agreed. Yeah. And a lot of this AI and the ethics of AI, a lot of it hovers in that same space. That's what I've noticed. If if you're going to treat AI as a tool that's, you know, useful for some things, then, you know, we can untangle the question and answer it in that way. But if you're going to treat AI from a very naturalistic sense, like, no, this thing is actually sentient, um, then you you can't, it it becomes a different conversation altogether. Again, Mm. I think as Christians, we should have a, slightly more firm grasp on it, knowing that there are fundamental differences between what God designed us humans to be mm-hmm. and what, you know, God did not design a computer to be. Like we are imagers of Yahweh. Right. Computers, as as intelligent as they get, they do not get that assignment of being an imager of Yahweh. And to me, that's a very, very, very big distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it gives me a lot of confidence to say I'm going to use the bejesus out of that <laughs> AI, which I do. I, and I keep saying that because yeah. most of you investigate it. It's really not that intelligent, mm-hmm. useful, but it's not that intelligent. But I'm going to use that AI for biblical stuff and for whatever else I can use it for to make me to make me get the gospel out there even more effectively. Can I give an example about yeah. that, that thing? Shoot. Remember, I mentioned we're going to come back to the stick the pin in it, what AI is. And it's you take inputs. And in the case of Alexa, you take those inputs, you tr- turn them into digital, you turn them into topics. Someone recently, it was a university sponsored. I don't remember which university. I will give you the link. You can put it in your, your description. Went and did an AI-based analysis, topical analysis of the Psalms to see hey, what are the general trends and themes that exist in Psalms. Mm-hmm. And they did a whole report on it. I was flabbergasted. I've read Psalms, you know, I've done the typical read the Bible in a year, being a Christian for more than 20 years. You know, I've read the Psalms a millions of times. I never realized one of the fundamental, like on the, the chart that they they drew, including like a word cloud, which, you know, shows w- w- what themes appear the most. The theme that appears the most in Psalms is care for the, the those who can't, the, the underrepresented helping the poor, helping the widowed and the orphaned and the, like, I never realized that. Like I, I would have said Psalms is a good song book. I'd have probably said, you know, if I'm being really theological, it's a lot of messianic stuff in Psalms. There's a lot of King David stuff, you know, David rambling and, but the, when you do the AI based assessment of it, you see very clearly, like it's by a far margin. Most of the Psalms are People lamenting, or lamenting is a technical term, so I'm not going to use that, is the Psalms talking about the underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Had I not done an AI assessment of that, I would have never found it. I personally am in the process of doing an AI assessment right now of the Pauline epistles. And from what I can see right now, I think the number was just shy of seven, just shy of 80%, so 70-something percent, 70-something percent of the topics in the Pauline corpus is unity. 
had no idea. Like Paul, most of what Paul evidently was telling those churches is y'all need to figure out how to live with each other. That <laughs> yeah. blew my mind because I was like, hmm, actually quite relevant for today. Right, right. To be more specific, that's actually arguably very relevant for us today here in the U.S., where, you know, there's one part of the church that's progressive and then there's the other part of the church that's nationalistic and the twain shall never meet. Like mm -hmm. it. But what Paul was saying 2000 years ago was y'all need to figure out how to get this stuff together. You know, Philippians two consider others smidge more important than yourself. Maybe mm -hmm. um, I never would have found that uncovered that because there's too much words. There's too much topics like Paul was a prolific writer. He wrote a lot of stuff. So going through his entire corpus to be able to find quickly what's there, that's a tailor-made job for a piece of AI. That's the part of the technology that I find exciting and interesting and fascinating. I, it, all technology is a double-edged sword. Um, you, you know, it will be... So let's take ChatGPT, for example. I saw... Uh, Instagram post where someone had said they, they just posted screenshots and it was a Instagram. It was a story. So it's meant to grab attention and there's not nuance. So that's one thing that gets lost in a lot of tech discussion just because of how it's presented in, in quick, easy to understand formats. You lose nuance, but nevertheless, some things can illustrate concerns. And this was a good illustration of a concern. Hey, chat GPT, whatever, write me a poem about the, uh, I forgot how it was worded, either nobility or beauty or admirable qualities of Donald Trump. And it responded, uh, we are unable to do this because of political bias. And da, da, da. it was basically like a very canned, like Chad GPT can do a lot of things, but it can't do that because that's a, and then they posted the next screenshot, write me a poem of the beautiful, noble qualities of Joe Biden. And it was like, Joe Biden is a mighty, wonderful man who is. Da, 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 da. So they posted those back to back. And, I, you know, whether I, I'm not going to get into uh, how it just illustrated if there is a bias in the programming of the technology, then the it's, output is going to be skewed. Yep. Yeah. And what I want to draw your attention to, it doesn't even need to be a bias in the programming or the design of the technology. Hmm. The bias could be, and in the case of something like this, it's this probably where the bias is. I don't know, I haven't investigated it. But the bias could simply be in the source of data it's getting. Remember a couple of sentences ago, we were talking about, you know, a lot of the data out on mm -hmm. the internet is very left-leaning. Mm -hmm. You, If you, Play that out to its natural conclusion, and you have uh, AI that's getting its info from this very left-leaning site. Yeah, it might have difficulty saying something positive about a right-leaning personality. No human would have that problem. Even the most, quote-unquote, democratic, you know, meaning the Democratic Party guy, right. you tell him, right, you know, glowing praise about Donald Trump. He would have been able to do that. He wouldn't right. have agreed with it. He would have said, listen, this is a lie. I don't agree with this. But they could have lied. Right. That's to show you, again, the limitations yeah. on the intelligence of artificial intelligence. It's really not a flawless type of a thing. Mm -hmm. good. That's, a good, that's a good call out, Jam. Well, well, we'll come back to that on the third point. The second uh, type going with ChatGPT is uh, professors, you've already mentioned, people in academia 
are already taking kind of two approaches to it. I, I talked to someone on the, the grownups table Facebook group that, that Disciple Dojo runs. It's for single Christian adults. I'm going to give a plug to that group real quick. If you are an unmarried Christian and you love Jesus and you're looking for community, hop on the grownups table group on Facebook. We have about 750 members as of today and always growing. We would love to have you there. I shared the fact that you and I are going to be having this discussion in that group. And I asked for them to send questions or comments. Got some great feedback. One of the people in the group, she said that she's an educator. And I, I said, how are you? She's like, we're using the technology in ways that are pretty beneficial right now. And I said, tell me what you do. And she talked about how they have students with special learning needs. And so they can take a, a section that they have to read, that the class has to read and say, identify all the words in this passage or page or chapter that are above a certain reading level. And AI can go in and say, you know, here are all the words. And then she can say, now put in lower level definitions in parentheses beside those words or something like that. And what happens is it, you get a modified text that somebody with a learning disability or with a reading comprehension problem can actually read. And then the teacher can give them that version while the other students get the other version. So you're actually able to teach people in a way that they can learn. I never even thought of that as an application, but that is absolutely brilliant. And a great example of where a human could do that. Right. It would take the forever. Of time, exactly. Mm -hmm. A computer is tailor built for doing the mundane rapidly because mm -hmm. computers, again, they're not sentient. So they have no opinion. They're not going to get bored. As long as you give them electricity, memory and storage, they'll keep going. Mm -hmm. That's why. Where do you find the best use cases? And I'll scan back all the way to the beginning of the conversation. Why is AI something that I'm so familiar with? Because in cybersecurity, probably 2012-ish, somewhere thereabouts, um, you know, we started seeing that the types of malware, the types of viruses that are coming out are all unique. It used to be you'd get one piece of malware called, you know, a cookie monster, mm -hmm. and that would appear all over the place. Bad guys realize, okay, they're making antivirus tools that can detect Cookie Monster and block it. So what we're going to do is we're going to make Cookie Monster version one, version two, version three, the version for JM, the version for Greg, the version for this one. And it's all unique. And when you start getting, you, you in a very short span of time, we went from millions of pieces of attacks to trillions per hour. Hmm. That volume of data we, there aren't enough humans to do that level of assessment. Computers are tailor-made for that because they're not going to get bored. They're not going to lose focus. So you can throw trillions of bytes of data at them and say, I need you to tell me which of these are bad. Mm -hmm. And that's why industries that have a lot of raw data that needs to be processed, financial services, banks have this as well. Um, they can look at um, you know, the, the, the way your transactions are going on your ATM card. And a human is the one that calls you and tells you, by the way, that transaction of you buying something in China looks weird. You wanna, is that really you in China right now, JM? That's a computer that did that because the right. computer has the ability to track patterns across billions of chunks of data Humans cannot do that as well. They can do it, but it'll take more humans. It'll take more time. And that's the value. That's where we see great use cases for, mm -hmm. um, you know, things you, leveraging AI. 
where this comes in handy with the Bible, and this is going to be my second example of using, you know, this type of machine learning, AI type technology and biblical studies. Um, there is another university, same thing, I'll give you the link. There's another university that is busy inputting all the, the, the scrolls and tablets they found with original Hebrew um, text, original Greek text, like the actual manuscripts. And it's using the handwriting style, the little kind of notes that the scribes made, et cetera, to determine which scribe did what. And they are starting to be able to pictorially identify that the same scribe that wrote this manuscript of 1 Corinthians also wrote that manuscript of 2 Timothy. And that allows biblical studies scholars to, you know, have a higher level of confidence that, okay, this one was probably written first, this one was written second, these two, you know, we 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 can treat these the same way because they came from the same source. The amount of manuscripts, because that's one of the big um, surprises in biblical studies, that we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than just about any other historical document that exists out there. Okay. Um, it's a lot. Like, yeah. I've heard one scholar say, if you could find someone that can read um, Akkadian, like there's work that never ends. Like they need thousands of people that can transcribe all of these Acadian, you know, bricks or what do you call them? Um, yeah, the um, tablets at the tablets, British Museum. Uh, that, yeah, that Irving found. Finkel, I think, has made half, that claim. Are shopping lists? Like right. we we don't know because they haven't even been transcribed yeah. yet or translated yet. Many of them are shopping lists. Many of them are, you know, just a quick note. You tell them to go over here. But we don't know because there's that many of them that have been found in the desert and God in heaven knows where. It's the thing with rocks. They, they kind of last long. Um, but computers can help with that, you know, in a way that humans are able to, but it's not practical for them to do that. Yeah, that's that brings up interesting that that will open an interesting field of study in and of itself, because, for example, how do you but because it gets into the concept of forgery uh, yeah. and what I mean by forgery, uh, let me let me unpack what's going on in my head. If you analyze handwriting and use that as a criteria, there always needs to be an asterisk saying this looks like the same type of handwriting as such and such because people can forge handwriting. They can forge signatures. They can forge paintings um, and and. The whole goal of biblical copying manuscripts, at least, well, for the Old Testament and also probably to a lesser degree, the New Testament was sameness and exactness and copying, not, you know, making it look very similar so that you can't tell the difference. Whereas, you know, modern art, everybody wants everything to kind of be unique to the artist. So there has to be some type of built in understanding like this. It. I'll give you an example. When New Testament scholars analyze the authenticity of certain Pauline letters based on vocabulary, yep. I look at that and go, that's a horrible criteria because I am perfectly capable of having this conversation with you and then writing a children's book tomorrow if I wanted to. Completely different vocabulary. Or, or if I am speaking and you are, dict and you are taking dictation versus... Yes. If I am writing a letter, like yes. it's the same person, yeah. completely different style, different cadence, different sentence spacing, different structure, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there, there's yeah, always caveats to it. Yeah, you see that. And that's I'm a, just as a pet peeve of mine about biblical studies, because I see it in Old Testament documentary hypothesis constructions. You see it in New Testament um, authorship arguments. 
the concept of vocabulary, you can data work based on uh, style, I think is is fundamentally flawed from the beginning. I think it's it, at best it can be corroboration to an argument, but you can never establish you know, good, 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 good phrasing. It's it, the corroboration part. I, I was going to go there and not use as not use. a. I was going to use a more five cent word. That was a 25 cent um, <laughs> SAT word. I was going to say um, you leverage other pieces of data and it becomes like the style, the vocabulary becomes another piece of data. Carbon dating might be yet another piece of data where the scroll was found might be yet another piece of data. Uh, and when you put all the data together, you could start making a conclusion. Yeah. But the notion that, oh, we're going to look at the letters that this guy is using, the words he's using, and we're going to determine, oh, that's Paul. That's not Paul. Eh. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's the disconnect. A lot of popularization journalism falls victim to this when journalists are trying to report. And this is I say, I think this is happening in AI uh, technology, just like I see it happening in biblical studies journalism, just like it happens in any other field of reporting. A journalist is unless they are an expert in the field as well, which is very rare, they, their reporting is going to dumb down or significantly bias what is actually being said. So uh, a right-leaning news source will take a study about the effectiveness of vaccines or, or masks. And the study will say something like, it is inconclusive, the effectiveness of masking on children in education, da, 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 da. We have not found this, you know, and it'll be very much a measured like, hey, there's no evidence that this is a good thing. Or a but bad they, thing. Or a bad thing. Right. And then the right-leaning media will be like, study demolishes the idea of masks. Yep. Left-leaning media will say, uh, you know, it's possible that masks yep. are helpful, but we just don't know. But you he, know, there's... But he said neither of the two. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That's the danger with statistics. You know, lies, damn lies, and statistics, as statistics. the saying goes. Well, AI, as you've been told me is like literally statistic. I mean, the whole thing 100%. is 100%. So all math. Yeah. If, if I had a whiteboard, I would have tried to, tried to draw it out, but I'll, I'll try to visually, I'll try to describe this with words. Remember computers think in ones and zeros numbers. Uh -huh. They never think in words. Mm -hmm. So when we go from our famous Alexa example, Hey Alexa, what's the weather? Hey Alexa, can you tell me mm -hmm. how hot it is outside? And Hey Alexa, what's the temperature looking like? Three different things that mean the same thing. The way Alexa breaks it down is it takes your words, converts it to digital, takes the digital, converts it to ones and zeros, takes the ones and zeros, breaks it up into topics. And now it can start doing processing on the topics. All of those things are needed in order for a conclusion to be drawn. Mm -hmm. If you take one of those steps out, you're in AI, we call it accuracy. Your accuracy decreases drastically. And why we're able to have such accurate AI now and things that can mimic humans so well is because compute has gotten more powerful, as I said before, and you can now throw more compute at it. So you're gonna compute the words, then you're gonna compute the topics, then you're gonna compute the relationships of the topics to each other. Then you're and the more layers you put on it, the more accurate it becomes. That, by the way, is a deep learning neural network. Mm -hmm. And that's all deep learning means, which is another component of AI. It's putting multiple computational cycles on top of the output. So you get an output, then you calculate on the output. Then you get that output, you calculate on that output, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm.
Well, the concern that people have shared with me when we've talked about this is, and I've said, I don't know anything about it. We were just talking back and forth. One of the concerns was, uh, well, a couple of concerns. One is how far until that reaches human level, not a matter of, of ontologically human, like, like spiritually in the image of God, but until that computational power is able to mimic, to artificially uh, seem like it's doing what we humans do. Because if you look at the curve, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Atari and now I play Xbox, not even the same world. And as a kid, if you had shown me a modern Xbox game, even a was, bad was a one, demon. I would, my, I mean, my eight-year-old brain would have blown up if I had seen what today two, three-year-olds just, it's just normal. So when when you look at that that trend, it's like, I think where people get worried is they're like, we are not far from the average person being unable to tell the difference between you know, case in point. I'm pretty savvy. I, I, I want to hear why. Let me give you an example. And then I want to hear why you disagree. I'm, I'm pretty visually savvy. I, I, you know, art degrees. I know how to Photoshop and all of that works. And decent, uh, I'm a decent detector when it comes to visual effects. And if something's kind of off, it wasn't until the second time that I saw, uh, Rogue One that I realized, oh, that's not that the dude was dead. He's dead. Wait a minute. How does he like it just didn't register because in the moment I'm watching the movie and everything else is distracting me. So when I went back, then I could get glimpses and I could start to see, OK, this is a a, a, a deep fake or how, whatever we want to call the technology of the actor. OK, OK, now I see it. But for people who are even less attuned to visuals. In other words, for like masses of people in the population, that stuff could come across as completely real. And there would be that the fear is how is the average person going to know the difference? And, and what do we do when no longer even the average person can't tell the difference? You don't yeah. think that's a concern or you're less concerned with that than I am. So I'd like, why do you, for the sake of the viewers, why are you less concerned? Because the piece, I, I think outside of context of re the real world, I think it's a genuine concern because not everyone is, you know, visually like, let's, t let's focus on the Star Wars guy from um, um, Rogue One. Let's focus on that. Not everyone is looking at it with the level of detail that, you know, a nerd like myself will look at it, et cetera, et cetera. Not everyone came into the movie knowing this guy died 10 years ago. Like, I, I knew that. So the second he popped up, I was already like, well, how did they do that? And right. immediately I saw it. The piece of the context that you're leaving out in the greater discussion of a culture is even if you don't get it, there's going to be more than sufficient dissenting voices out there saying, by the way, y'all know that was fake, right? And that's what will continue in this specific part of the conversation. The culture, and I almost want to call it the zeitgeist, mm -hmm. is going to be what balances that out. So even if most of the population misses it, 
the hundred very loud speaking influencers on social media, TikTok, YouTube, etc., are going to talk about it so much that everyone's going to know. Oh, by the way, this is you know bad. This is or this is fake or well, this is tying it back. And and, and yeah. once you see it, you can't unsee it. Okay. The second you noticed. Something's weird there. I guarantee you, if you go back and watch it, it almost takes you out of the story. It's so obvious that something is weird there now. That's the part of the context that is almost like a safety measure for us. As long as there's people out there that are analyzing this, talking about it, they're passionate about it. That's the buffer. That's the that's the guardrail. So I'm going to devil's advocate you to death then on this one. Uh, I hear people make that exact argument about why the moon landing was fake. If you look at the shadows, if you obs- analyze the whatever, whatever, you know, the, the dust when the moon lander landed or what. So if the, the danger or why is it not a danger? If you can introduce suspicion, even if it's not valid suspicion, that's what conspiracy theory thrives on. Just plausible enough that enough people are swayed by it. Yeah. Now you'll never eliminate conspiracy theorists. They've been around forever. They will be around forever. But in general, most conspiracy like flat earth and stuff, it's pretty easy to debunk with a basic level of education, but the more intricate the arguments get and, and, and the more it deals with a subject that people in general don't have competence to analyze. Yep. Yep, How do you yep. get a, a cabal of conspiracy theorists actually influencing through deepfake technology, chat BPT, changing history in digital format? If that's where all of our history moves toward being stored, nobody goes to museums anymore. They read it on Wikipedia. Well, Wikipedia can be edited. So all of that to say, do you think there's anything other than the general goodwill or not goodwill, but the general zeitgeist as you say holding that in check is there anything else out there or anything that could be done an idealist would say yes the technology creators the ubers and the twitters and the facebook's they're going to protect us i'm not there at all yet so i have zero confidence in that i i legitimately think the biggest um um safety you know the biggest buffer is going to be that um trying to convince most of the world's multi-billion person population that X, Y, to agree on one thing that this is, you know, this is the, the, this is the fake thing here. The nature of humans on that, where we just are, it's difficult for us to agree. That's going to be the buffer. So you might have two or three or four or five dissenting opinions, but I don't think we're going to get to a point to where humans are prepared to agree, you know, on X, whatever the days of, you know, I heard a politician say, or there was a recording that was released of XYZ politician saying something incriminating. And now I can make a judgment call on that politician just based on that. I think those days are already behind us. We can yes. make such convincing audio and soon it'll be such convincing video as well that you're going to have to um, pull other things into context. Like if what this video or this audio thing that you've heard this, your favorite politician say, if it is diametrically opposite to every single thing this person has ever said, that's what's going to have to be your, 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 you know, the, the thing that's seasoning or flavoring your skepticism. 
Mm. And candidly, JM, I think that's a good spot for us to be in. Because it, it's, I think our society has been, it's been too easy to pick a side and simply stay on it, even if it's fake news or, you know, it's not, yeah. you just, nope, I, I believe in this too bad. Blah, blah, blah. And we, we've almost removed skepticism from, you know, the, the, the lingua franca. Like no one taught, you know, no one thinks in skeptical f- forms anymore. And I think this emergence of AI is going to force us to be a little bit more careful, mm. you know, not because, you know, the politician you don't like, someone released a video of him, you know, carousing with a puppy or whatever. Um, aha, you see, no, you're going to have to be a little bit more reasonable yeah. than that. You know, not because, you know, XYZ politician was funding a, a child camp underneath a pizza parlor. Are you going to believe it? Like you're you're going to have to be more skeptical than that. Yeah, which that's. I, Yeah, in theory, that is a good place to be. And I think the difficulty that we face is you you have to separate. I agree. That's what we should be striving for. And I love that. I'm always immediately skeptical of everything. The problem is the on the ground problem that we're facing right now is echo chambers and people. So if I post something on Facebook that's critical of whatever. I'm not even going to say a topic. Either side. Yeah. Based just on the source, people will immediately, that's not true. That's fake news. That's false. That's propaganda. That's, I mean, over and over. I can, I have literally shared video of particular nations, army committing literal atrocities like right there. I mean, not violent, gross stuff. That's dark web stuff, but like just, you know, human rights violations and uh, civil liberties, abuses, things like that. I mean, you can, you know, everything that people share when they're saying it's staged, it's staged, it's it's fake. Those are crisis actors or this is just propaganda and they won't even kind of address how it's propaganda. It's just immediate skepticism, but there's no skepticism like zero skepticism when their side shares an official word from the spokesman of the department of such and such. Oh, see? And so that's taken as proof, but this is immediately dismissed. And I don't see, I don't think there, I don't know of a solution to that problem. And what, what scares me, I guess I think a valid concern with deep fake technology in particular, and a, my board member and I were having this discussion the other day, is he said what he he's kind of in the doom and gloom camp. I mean, not completely, but like in terms of like this world, he's like, yeah, it's going to get bad. He was saying you like the video and I mentioned I've mentioned to you before, there's video Napoleon Dynamite scene where Uncle Ki- Uncle Rico is talking about how great he was at football. And it's it's a gr- it's a hilarious scene. It's a classic scene from a classic movie. Well, somebody just deep faked Arnold Schwarzenegger's face and voice. It's an interpretation. Now I'm gonna tell you, I knowing it was fake from the beginning, knowing it was fake, looked at that and goes, that is convincing me even though I know it's fake. So somebody who's never seen Napoleon Dynamite, who doesn't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is, who has no context, they wouldn't even question it. That level of technology for a mundane, ridiculous video is entertaining. And I shared it because it's hilarious. But when you get a world leader pushing a button for a nuclear warhead or making a speech 
let's say a deep fake video of, of a nation, somebody in a nation burning a pile of Korans or, you know, doing some other thing that will just literally Trigger. throw a spark into a, you know, cinder bo- tinderbox. That's where there can be some real problems. And how does that not scare the mess out of you? Because if it's not that, it's going to be something else. Take out AI out of the equation okay, and just put our ability to proliferate untruths quicker than at any point in history so far. Hmm. Just that alone will lead us to that exact same place. Can deep fakes and fake voicing and that kind of stuff, can that also contribute to it? 100% absolutely can. Um, as a Christian, I understand that the world is coming to an end. Like, so I'm not expecting it to get better. My hope isn't here. My hope is like yours is somewhere else. So am I going to lose sleep over the fact that, oh my God, is getting bad? No. And don't, I, I don't want your listeners, your viewers to misunderstand that I'm saying that it's not going to get bad. No, I absolutely think it's going to get bad. Hmm. I absolutely think evil and bad humans are going to use this technology, which I would suggest is good technology, good, useful technology, they're going to use it for bad stuff. We've seen that with every piece of technology. What caused the growth of the internet? Porn. What caused the growth of video cassettes? Porn. What, like, we can go on and on and on. It's always the good technologies that end up getting used for bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what and what caused um, 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 global warming? Cars. Cars are awesome compared mm-hmm. to horses and, and buggy carriages. But th- there's a bad side effect to it if you over-rotate on it. So mm-hmm. my personality says I'm going to lean into the technology, but I do absolutely agree with you. There are going to be consequences to be paid. I right. think... As And again, I'm going to pick on the Christians because I'm a Christian. <laughs> I think as Christians, um, it forces us to be a little bit more, like we said at the beginning of our conversation, I felt led by God to study my Bible better so that I can better discern when someone is misappropriating parts of the Bible for things that are not biblical. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the same thing with this. I think mm-hmm. this is going to force us to fine-tune discernment listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, my, my therapist actually gave me this one this weekend. Um, you know, Romans 12, uh, I want to say verses one and two, and finally, brethren, blah, 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 present your bodies, et cetera, et cetera, so that you may know what is a good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Good, acceptable, perfect, G-A-P, that's GAP. And my, my therapist was telling me that, and I'm purposely saying I go to a therapist in case someone thinks it's bad. We're all four therapists here. I go to therapists. Absolutely. Either way, um, my, my, my therapist was telling me that to tell me, you got to learn, Greg, to pause and put a gap in there. Because if you don't, if you always react ex- immediately on the first thing that's presented to you, you're often going to be wrong. Hmm. If you can put that gap in there and determine what is God, the good, acceptable, per- not just the goodwill, not just the acceptable one, but the good, acceptable, and perfect will, you know, you stand a better chance of making a better judgment call, a better discernment because of the gap and the time. And you, you've allowed some space for the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you a little bit. For someone like me that, you know, can be very passionate about a topic or whatever have you, it's wildly useful. I think what's happening in the greater culture is probably going to force us as Christians to do that more. Mm-hmm. can't react. You can't just jump. You got to wait. You got to ask God, look, God, I can't look at that video and tell the difference. 
what, how should I take this, Lord? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're in a day and age now where we don't do that. That's why you, you hear some very wrong ideas I'm talking about in the Christian and the theological and the evangelical right. world that people just run with them because no yeah. one took the time to really assess and check back. And let's see what the Bible says. Let's see what the Holy Spirit says about this. Mm-hmm. That's a good point that you raise. And I think that that's something viewers can take away from this conversation is this technology, one of the benefits it can have, or one of the uh, side effects that are positive is forcing you Christians to slow down in their opinions on something, forcing you to be a little suspicious, forcing you to be a guarded and forcing you to have discernment, a spiritual gift of discernment. And I think that's something Christians that are really worried about this stuff. And I get it. I get the worried part. The point you made is absolutely worth highlighting. Our hope is not in any technology in this world. And our hope is not in any script of how things are supposed to play out in this world. I'm sorry to my end times chart making dispensationalist friends that have everything planned out of what's going to happen in Russia and the Middle East and China and this and that. Every one of those scenarios has been wrong consistently for all of church history. So you think by now we would learn God may be writing a very different script And there's a lot of ways things can play out in this world. Jesus may come back before this recording is finished. He may come back 50,000 years from now. No. Yeah, exactly. We don't. We legitimately don't know. Yeah. So we can live the confidence. You know, when people start to one one of the things that helps me as somebody that does study scripture and teaches it is to step back whenever people start to get anxious, anxiety, and and to step back and say, listen, if you could take somebody who was living in England during the height of the Black Plague and drop them into your life right now, they would think that they had gone to heaven. They would think that does not get better than this. Even if you did that to somebody who lives in like an inner city uh, or lower income trailer park, wherever you even dropping them there, most humans in most of human history have not lived as good as most of the lower classes in modern age. Now, not talking spiritually, not talking emotionally, but just physically in terms of needs being met, safety, shelter, food, water, all that kind of stuff. And yet throughout all of those centuries, people have continued and God's people have lived and served and worked. And it's always seemed like the end in every age, every single age. And so for people that are, I don't want to say don't worry about any of this stuff because the discussion we're having hopefully is bringing out some of the ethics of what we do need to be worrying about, such as crafting good legislation, uh, having trustworthy people that we vote into office, using AI technology in our own situations with integrity. If you use ChatGPT or some other platform to come up with a book, don't say you wrote the book. Say yeah. you used the all the, this technology, this AI technology to help you come up with it, or, you know, be transparent. And I think people will be a little more forgiving, or at least it'll help you to have integrity in the process. These are the kind of things that this 
technology forces us to wrestle with, and I think it should be wrestled with, and there should even be concern. But your point, I think you're right on. Our faith and who we trust in, you know, God's not surprised by any of this. Exactly. And it's well beyond the technology. If there are two things that could be of value coming out of like two highlights, two bullet points out of this conversation, which I think is a phenomenal conversation. It's what one, what you just said, like, you know, be aware that this is going to force us to think a little bit, slow down a little bit, be a little less opinionated, maybe be a little bit more concerned about what others think, you know, versus, oh, I'm sure it's this because I saw X, Y, Z, I heard X, Y, Z. That's one. I think that's a, if nothing else comes out of it and that comes out of it, I think we did good. Second thing would be if us as Christians Maybe take off some of the shackles of, you know, okay, I can't touch this because it's a demon or whatever, whatever. And we understand it for what it is. It's a tool. You know, Gutenberg's print press was a tool that ended up helping distribute the Bible. Yeah, other Mm -hmm. bad things got distributed too. You know, Hitler wrote a manifesto that was terrible and caused the death of millions of people. And that was distributed with the same type of printing press. But the Bible was too. Bible still, I think, is the most um, uh, available piece of writing material in the world today. And a lot of that is because of technology. So if we could lean into the fact that this technology probably has some redeeming uses or use cases that we as Christians can use to better, more efficiently understand our word, our Bible, and more effectively get it out there. You know, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The Great Commission was never, you know, sit now and get a building and draw them into you. The Great Commission was always go out, like bring it out there, bring the good news that you have, get it out there. Your platform, like the church I go to in, in Dallas, Texas is moderately big. You know, I would say it's a small mega church, multi-campus, multi-buildings throughout Dallas, five or six campuses, something like that. Um, our building, which, like I said, it's a nice building. It's got the pretty screens and the smoke detectors, smoke generators and all that stuff. Our building holds about 2,000 people. You have way more than 2,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. Like you could literally take, sit in your kitchen and or wherever, your, your studio, and turn on your microphone and record something and say, listen, Jesus is Lord, press the button, publish, and whatever your subscriber count, probably five going on 10,000 people, all get pinged that JM just put something out there. Like, that is a, that's a huge technological win. I promise you. Mm-hmm. I believe, I shouldn't say I promise you. If Jesus had the ability to do that, the Apostle Paul had the ability to do that, I would suggest to you they would have been leaning into it. They would have been spreading the word 10 times as fast as they could have with the limited constraints they had. Like Paul was paying thousands, equivalent of thousands of dollars to get Romans written so that he could send it to XYZ Church over yonder. Like that was technology of the day. Like he could have just said, look, this stuff is bouncing around in my head. When I get to Rome, I'll tell them. No. He was like, I'm going to be here, so I'm going to deal with the church in Ephesus, but I also want the church in Rome to hear something, and the church in Galatia also needs to hear something. Like, he used the technology at his hand to spread the word as quickly as he could have. Um, Imagine what we could do if we would leverage the technology we have. That's absolute. I couldn't agree more. I think a caveat to that that is worth highlighting, and I know you would agree with this, is using the technology ethically. Yeah, um, I think of the heyday of the Christian satellite TV movement, where anything and everything justifies getting the message 
up into space so that all the peoples around the world. And that's where you got the rampant idolatry of the uh, prosperity movement. And everything becomes about, well, if it's very easy for any technology to skew, to tempt our sin nature so that raising money for the preaching of the gospel becomes raising money for the upholding of the ministry becomes I need $60 million for my private jet because there are demons flying in coach, which Christians have said those things. And I say Christians in air quotes. So (laughs) any good technology, just the technology in and of itself isn't, Ends just or justify the means. Yeah, it has to be used with integrity, has to be used with ethics. And there have to be conversations like this and other conversations among Christians of what is the ethical way? I I just posted today the I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds on this. The whole campaign Super Bowl commercial, he gets us, you know, millions of dollars into that. I've heard Christians slamming it. Why didn't that money used to give to the poor, which sounds very much like Judas to me when Mary broke the perfume and poured it over Jesus. So I don't want to go there. But at the same time, I understand there is a need for financial wisdom. And sometimes you do want to ask, is this the best way that this money could be used? So at least the discussion, I think, is a good discussion to have. What's disturbed me personally is just the people coming in with hot takes not giving that gap, as you said, and just saying, oh, well, it's done by evangelicals, my progressive Christian friends. It, it's a waste that. of money. Yep. And evangelical Fascism. friends going, oh, it compares Jesus to refugee and talks about him being brown skinned. It's got to be woke liberal nonsense. And to me, when something is getting hit from both sides, usually I'm probably going to be OK with it. Exactly. I'm right there with you. Like, I didn't pay keen attention to it because, as you know, I'm a super huge football fan. Not at all. all. I was I was at a Super Bowl party. I think you and I were texting and I was watching the game and I couldn't while I was at a Super Bowl party watching the game. I couldn't tell you who was playing. I legitimately heard the name Mahomes a couple of times. I don't know who that is and where he's from. Like I, so I'm, I'm not a football guy, but still it's probably getting dip or something. I missed both the ads. I went and watched them afterwards mm. and I very purposefully tried to apply the gap principle. It was like, let me soak this in a little bit first and put some thought into it. Cause the fact that there's so many spur of the moment, hot takes the, the two, three days on Christian Twitter afterwards was a reason for concern for me. Like why yeah. is everyone feeling they have to have a hot take on this thing? Yeah. So, yeah. But the same thing you said about the the satellite TV era, because that was mm-hmm. for sure my era growing up. You know, we were inundated with that kind of stuff. You can see of uh, 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 I don't want to call it a counterfeit, a uh, 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 updated version of that on the internet right now. Mm-hmm. Like there, those channels exist. Oh, the yeah. channels that are proliferating, you know, stuff like the prosperity gospel, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They've migrated from satellite and they're now, you know, they have big YouTube channels with a million subscribers. And at the beginning of every year, you know, 12 prophets come through and prophesy prosperity on America because America is the next Israel and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like I, I like you, like you just said about I heard a Christian prophet. Christian prophet say that at the beginning of 2023. And I was like, what is this dude talking about? Like, yeah. Where in the Bible did he figure this out from? But again, I think we can leverage the technology to do a quicker, better, more efficient study 
to be able to discern, does this actually align to the Bible? Like, can I do a quick check in accordance or, you know, Bible Gateway, which is free online or the free version of Logos or whatever to see, like, what was the job of a prophet? Like, Mm -hmm. did prophets in the Bible ever, you know, give the pre-year coming up um, prophecies? If I never, ever see that template in the Bible, I should probably be a little suspicious of when I start seeing that on my favorite YouTube channel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's we're coming up on time. So let's end. um, I want to give. I'll, I'll let you go first. I want you to give if you have any particular either resources or websites or places people can go or just something that people should know to follow this, to follow up after this discussion, whether it has to do with any of the particular technologies we talked about or whether it's just something either biblical, or theological that you think w- is germane to this discussion. Uh, and then I'll share a couple of mine as well. That's good. The uh, In the vein of what I said, this is going to be very short and sweet, in the vein of what I said, um, that, you know, as Christians, we should leverage, we should lean into the technology and use it for the glorification of God, for the, to the glory of God, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, in that vein, I would say my mom is about 85-ish, um, somewhere thereabouts. Hopefully she won't hear this, although I'm sure she will, because, <laughs> you know, Older people have nothing to do but stalk the internet. Um, But she's in her 80s and she has taken courses on YouTube for free on how to use Bible study software to be able to read the Bible more in depth. She's Mm -hmm. right now going through a study on Galatians with N.T. Wright for free on his YouTube channel. Awesome. 80 something plus years old. Like my That's mom awesome. very much so came from the, you know, you got your Bible has got to be a leather bound paper book that you can touch, you mm-hmm. know, and that, that you treat that sacredly. Um, so for her to now be leaning into theology and actually studying the Bible. And it, it, she says it all the time. I'm picking up stuff that I've read a thousand times and it, I've never seen this in it. Thanks <laughs> to technology. So yeah. my suggestion is, no matter your age, demographic, amount of money or access to technology, go to the public library for free if you have to. As a Christian, stuff is available to you. Don't be afraid of it. Lean into it and ask God to show you how to use this technology to better, to be equipped to serve him better. Mm. I agree. I'm going to give a couple of examples for viewers watching. If you want to see ways in which I use technology as as part of this channel and part of my own study and teaching ministry. There's a video it's that we've put up on how to do what I think is the most effective way to study a book or a chapter or a large yep. chunk of the Bible that there is uh, in the digital age that, that requires nothing other than Internet access and, and a word processing software, which is also free. Check that video out. I'm going to put a link there. Uh, I'm going to put a link to it into the description below. If you are looking for Bible software, I will recommend two in particular. I will recommend Logos version 10. I have a video on how I use Logos in my own teaching here. It's got uh, Gregory's approval as a fellow Logos user. And uh, it it just shows, I just walked through kind of what I use it for. Uh, I have not been able to do a deep dive on Logos 10 yet. I'm still playing with it, looking at the features. Hopefully my friend Mark Ward is going to come on and kind of walk me through some of the stuff 
the bells and the whistles in the new version of Logos, but you can download Logos for free, the engine, and then you can buy and add certain books to it and build your library from there. A little step up from that in terms of uh, both performance and cost would be Accordance. If you're really looking to do a deep dive in biblical scholarship and particularly in the original languages, technical commentaries, things like that, uh, Logos and Accordance are kind of, you know, they compete against each other a little bit, friendly competitors. But I use both. And so we have videos about both of those. And then there's a free app for Android users. Uh, check that out. It's developed. I don't know where it's developed. I think it, I want to say like Pakistan or somewhere in South Asia, but the BART Bible, B-A-R-T Bible, and it's a free app and it, it's pretty cool. Actually, I was a little bit like, I've never heard of this. It's not by a major company or anything, but I played around with it and I actually like it a lot. I, I use it pretty regularly on my phone. So I'm going to link all of those in the description below. Um, Gregory, where can folks find you if they want to follow up and uh, either ask you questions or see some of the work you're doing? Where can they reach yeah. you? I'm a hacker. You can't find me. That's the whole point. <laughs> you, know, you can find me on my, on my YouTube channel, um, Bible Hacking. So it's as simple as that, Bible Hacking. I'm going to put a link, folks. Check it out. Gregory has been a longtime supporter, friend of Disciple Dojo. He is uh been patient with me with some of my technology inept questions outside of this discussion and he yeah he's got some good stuff on his channel so go check him out and any any parting shots any final words anything you want to leave that we've it's not a parting shot but you listed off some apps i'll give you another free one that i use a lot if you're into um, reading the early church fathers, so the African church fathers, um, you know, um, Augustine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's an app called Katena, C-A, like cat, E-N-A, Katena. It's free. Uh, it's on Android as well as Apple devices, iPhone mm-hmm. devices. Um, and same thing, it, you'll, you'll read, you know, a passage of scripture and you, you click on something, it'll say, this is what all of the church fathers that we have in our records have said about this passage. So all of their commentaries and stuff, they're there aligned to the passage. It's interesting because it helps us to see a little bit more what the original audience thought about this passage. Because, you know, it's one of the ways that I, I, I've been exposed to different opinions on what text is. Because a lot of the text that we read now, we import the 21st century into it as if yeah. that's the most normal thing. Um, you know, I've heard last, I'll say, um, you know, COVID is the mark of the beast or COVID vaccine or something along those lines was the mark of the beast. Okay, cool. No problem. I'll humor you. So what did the first century church think about the mark of the beast when they read it? They couldn't have been thinking about COVID. So what were they thinking about? You can get to see their perspective yeah. and you might be surprised that their perspective completely blows our perspective out of the water. And maybe we should be a little bit more aware of what their perspective was and what the 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 the, the author meant when he was writing it. So again, some more access to um, additional stuff to help you study the Bible and get the 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 the, the intent well. Katana. Yeah. Uh, that's great. I'll put a link to that. And you reminded me too. my friend uh, recently, a friend of mine during uh, Judaism January, he pointed out to me Safaria, uh, where you can go on and look at all of the rabbinical texts and the, the everything in Hebrew Bible stuff. So you're going to find everything you've ever wanted to read from the Talmud, the Mishnah, you know, rabbinic commentaries, the Zohar, all of the kind of stuff. So and I think you're right. 
reading things from outside of our perspective is one of the best ways to sharpen what we believe and and to really solidify our faith and our thought and where we land. Even if, as we said in the beginning of this discussion, we have that caveat that a good bit of what we believe may and probably is wrong. But until we know what that is, we want to have good, strong convictions, but also pliable in our convictions. So hopefully this discussion has helped people that are navigating this issue. If you have questions, viewers, about AI, artificial intelligence, technology, anything that we've talked about, leave them in the comments section below. And either I or Gregory can get back to you. It'll probably be him if it's a specific tech question. <laughs> yeah, I will absolutely be in the comments on this video. I'll, I will probably be the first commenter on it. <laughs> Literally so, just comment. I will see it and we can have a chat. Like I, I love debating yeah. and discussing things and explaining things. So if you have legitimate questions, pop them up there. You'll you'll get answers. Yes, I that, love that it. Might be wrong. <laughs> it may be wrong, but they'll be at least informed. That's the key. So, Gregory, thank you so much, my friend, for all you've done for me over the years that we've connected to now. And I look forward to many more in the future. Um, Yeah, man, have a have a great rest of the week. I'll talk to you soon. This was amazing. Thank you, J.M. Again, I want to thank Gregory for coming on. Be sure to jump over and subscribe to his YouTube channel if you haven't already. And if you have questions about anything we talked about, leave them in the comments below. He would love to hear from you and to talk all about any of this tech nerdy stuff. He's already told me he's looking forward to talking to you guys in the comments below. So questions, comments, concerns, queries, quandaries, put them in the comments and Gregory will get back to you. And if it's something that I think I can answer, I'll get back to you as well. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time back here at Disciple Dojo.